Thank you for joining us, Liam. Thank you for asking me, James. Excellent. Um, so today we've got Liam Halpin, Vice President of Sales, Amir and Latam for LinkedIn Sales Solutions. He brings more than three decades of sales experience leading international sales organizations at companies like Fujitsu and Dell. And you have global experience in far regions like Russia, the Middle East, and also Latin America. LinkedIn introduced Sales Navigator as a standalone SaaS product five years ago. And since its debut on July 31st, 2014, Sales Navigator has gone from a promising product to table stakes at most B2B organizations, according to a recent Forrester report. During this time, LinkedIn has developed deep integrations with CRMs like Microsoft Dynamics, Salesforce, acquired companies like Point Drive, and developed the Sales Navigator application platform, Snap. Snap pro provides the opportunities for other sales technologies, um, like SalesLoft or Drift, to integrate seamlessly. And the LinkedIn Sales Solutions European team um, is led by Rebecca um, Schnaufer. Is that? Schnaufer. Um, so thank you very much for joining us today, Liam. We're really excited to have you here and hoping to learn more about you and the business that you represent. Um, coming in today, what, what's got you most excited about um, Friday in London at LinkedIn? Yeah, it's always great to uh, to visit our London office. There's a there's a particular energy in the in in this office, and we've had a uh, had a very busy week. Uh, arrived here on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. My leadership team had our quarterly offsite, okay. uh, which normally we look at what's going on. One day is what's going on in the business right now. What can we do better today? And then the second part of it is, you know, what is that 2021, 22 view? Where's the landscape going? Where's the where's the ball going to be? And we invest a lot of time in in doing that. And then yesterday, <coughs> we had our first uh, LinkedIn Sales Technology Summit, um, and that was uh, we had over 150 people in the in in the room, but we also had more than a thousand people on LinkedIn Live, which is a new video live video feature we we have on the platform. Yeah. Um, so it's been a busy week, and now, and now I'm here this morning. Uh, so after this, we've got uh, I've got other meetings, and uh, and then I'll be heading to Heathrow for a 7 p.m. flight uh, home to Ireland. Fantastic! Just in time to come back to London on Monday for a flight to San Francisco. Excellent! So you've got an exciting adventure ahead of you. How how do you stay motivated? You know, when you wake up, you're staying in many hotels all around the world. What what's something? What's the first thing you 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 think about when you wake up in the morning? Yeah, I mean, for, for, for me, um, it depends on where I am. Um, and I, I'm a, um, always have been a huge believer in compartmentalization in terms of um, if, I'm, if I'm here and I've got three things to do across this week, they're the things I think of. Okay. Um, and you know, that, the, the, so from a, you can't, you know, I can't impact things that I need to be, it's no point me thinking about things I need to do this weekend at home yeah. um, because I'm here and I need to be in the, uh, I need to be in the zone for that. So normally I compartmentalize myself into the, where I am, what I'm there to do, yeah. and then I try and restrict what I'm thinking uh, just to that for, for, for that time frame. Interesting. And that, and that enables you to perform at your best in the zone while you're in the office or in country. Correct. Because, you know, um, like everybody these days, uh, we're always on, um, you know, whether it's WhatsApp or whether it's email or the various other platforms that yeah. uh, people can, can contact you on. Um, and it's easy to get distracted. And people's expectations um, of, you know, everybody, it's, hey, uh, have, have you ever got a WhatsApp, which is, hey, I sent you an email five minutes ago and you haven't come back to me on Teams. 
okay? <laughs> yeah. So so it's staying in that zone and making sure that you know these are the things I need to achieve this week yeah. and trying to do a great job on the things I need to achieve versus peanut spreading across multiple things. Excellent. As we go through um, the interview, we're going to learn more about your career. Um, I, I wonder at this stage of seniority and the level of success you've achieved in your leadership career, what's, it, what's inspired you to continue to up-level? Yeah, it's, it, 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 it's, it's interesting um, that uh, I often talk about this, but my, um, my, the very first thing I did that somebody gave me money for uh, in a, apart from like a paper roundup, which I was really terrible at, um, it was when I was 16, 17, <coughs> I had two uh, video games commercially released. I was a, I was a, um, a home software programmer, um, and I made a reasonable amount of money from that, and that was in the days of the Sinclair Spectrum and Arc Atmos and Commodore 64, and then that industry collapsed into uh, the console business, right? So it, it you know, I made a decision in 1985 when I left secondary school that I'd gotten a, I'd gotten a decent enough what we call the leave insert in Ireland, the equivalent of A levels in Ireland to yeah. sorry in the UK, to go and do computer science at, at college. Uh, two things influenced me. Uh, one was that a friend of mine who was a couple of years older, who was four years older than me, had gone through college and was now working for a bank here in London, uh, and going, dude, don't go into the don't go into programming. I'm writing subroutines to knock like the seventh decimal off something, right? So it was like, don't do this. And the second thing that influenced me... There's an me, alternative out there. Yeah, the second thing that influenced me was uh, that I, at the, the economic environment in Ireland at, the, at that time in 1985 was 17% unemployment. And literally, um, you know, at the time, there was so much immigration, people heading to the States, people heading to Germany, the UK. Uh, it, was, it was a pretty dismal place. Uh, and I had... Um, I'd been offered a um, a role as a trainee manager in a supermarket, a company called Superquin, um, and they were, hey, we're going to give you a job. We're going to train. We're going to send you to night school two nights a week. You're going to learn about law. You're going to learn about management. You're going to learn about retail. Uh, I made a decision to do that, okay. and um, the uh, the ethos that my dad had uh, had always uh, put into me was, uh, the only thing I want you to do, no matter what you try and do, is do your best, right? Just don't do don't do less than your best. Do your best. Yeah. Okay, and that, that that was a fairly strong work ethic. Um, so I, I talk about this. You know, I get paid appreciably more money now, and I have done in every other job since that job. But I don't. I, I didn't work any less hard for my eight and a half thousand pounds salary. That was my full salary back in 1985. Yeah. Uh, than I do today for the number I'm not going to disclose. <laughs> <laughs> for, but, another, and, for another and day. And it's, and it's, it, it's, it's, you know, what it, my, and generally my career advice to people is, look, opportunity will find you. Okay. But it won't find you if you're waiting for it. That's fair. When you talk about the early stages of your career, was it the supermarket that introduced to the experience of sales? That was there someone in your life? How did you actually get introduced? Yeah, to sales? it was interesting. Well, first of all, um, the um, the two video games that um, I had released, I had to sell those to a music company. So I actually had a contract with a music company okay. for those. I had to meet. I was seventeen years of age. My parents didn't know this was going on. Uh, I had to sit in front of a you know, bunch of suit-wearing, tie-wearing executives and pitch my uh, my products. So it was my very first uh, sale was 
uh, was that. Amazing. Um, it was pretty easy because um, I wasn't overly impressed with my output. They were like super impressed. Yeah. Uh, so, so that I suppose my first sales. Um, the p thing that got me into sales was that I was doing my supermarket training manager job for three years, relatively happy. <laughs> and then a friend of mine who had emigrated to uh, Germany came back to Ireland, uh, driving a brand new Golf GTI, wearing a Hugo Boss suit, saying, you need to get yourself to Germany. I'm selling cars to American soldiers, and you could come work for me. Um, so I, on a moment of impulse, it just felt right, um, said I'm going to Germany. Interesting. Okay, so a month later, I, I, uh, I landed in uh, Wiesbaden. Um, Did you speak German? Um, no, I didn't need to speak German because we were selling uh, cars to American soldiers. Okay. Uh, on the, at the time, there was, a, I think, about 400,000. What does an American soldier need a car? <laughs> um, so, so, so the American military um, back in the 80s, they, they had about 400,000 people in Germany. Wow. And um, they would move their families with them as well. So, so, so and you know, the, um, whether it was Wiesbaden, whether it was Frankfurt, whether it was uh, an Air Force base called Bitburg that I worked on, uh, you had sort of like a mini version of America, where the f where the families of the soldiers lived, and then you had the and then you had the uh, the military operations. Um, so when they would normally do a three year rotation in country, so they could uh, buy a car tax free uh, to use when they were in, and then the military would ship it back. They would ship a forty foot container of household goods yep. plus one car. So okay. there was a so we could either sell a car to you in country, uh, or we could deliver a car to. Uh, to wherever you wanted to deliver to um, when you were going back to America. Right? Okay, great opportunity. Uh, yeah, so I, I went. So, so, so what was interesting was I went over to be uh, what we would call an SD yeah. um, for, uh, for. So I was on the car lot um, qualifying people, and I would bring qualified um, prospects what, to the sales rep. What was the skills then that you had either identified in yourself or you'd learned from others that made you more effective than maybe your peers? Yeah, I think I think two things. Um, I grew up on an army base. I was born on an army base. I grew up on an army base. My dad was in the army for thirty-four years, so I felt comfortable in that in environment. Yeah. Um, and also, um, again, you know, some of the um, I, I, I'm I'm relatively comfortable talking to people, no matter what their level of seniority is. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so so I would treat a three-star private the same as a four-star general. And not be afraid to talk to to wider. And I think it was uh, a willingness and an openness to uh, talk to people, understand what they were looking for, and then try and guide and, and, and direct them. And if you fast forward to today, when you think about the solutions that LinkedIn Sales Solutions takes to the market, and you think about your own hiring philosophy, what do you look for in individuals that you would like to join your teams? Yeah, I, I, the most important thing for me is uh, is is somebody who understands that you know at LinkedIn we talk about relationships mattering, and um, what I've seen in the arc of my career is that that is so true that there are uh, there are people that I do business with today that I competed against twenty years ago, but it was a ethical competition. Um, and and so 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 I look for people that can demonstrate that they've invested in relationships, mm -hmm. and that they understand the value of two things: the payback of relationships in the long run, but also the payback of integrity in the long run. And you know when uh, when I sold cars, there were guys that would um, would would misrepresent 
um, f factors and they, they sold more than I did at that time, I wasn't prepared to do that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, in other early stages of my career, there was people who were prepared to do things. I worked in the photocopier industry and there were people prepared to do things in that industry that I wasn't prepared to do. Yeah. But the difference is that I've tracked the arc of people, you know, those people who did those things and none of them have good jobs today. Um, so, in, so integrity is, a, I, I really believe in integrity mm -hmm. and I believe that you know, integrity will pay you back in your, in your career. Mm -hmm. It may cost you right now, yeah. but you, you, you can't buy your reputation. Absolutely. Um, you know, I had the good fortune myself to spend uh, three years at LinkedIn. W what do you think is the f fundamental DNA here that makes it a special place for people to work? Yeah, I, I, I think the, 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 the key thing is that LinkedIn's culture and values are not just something that are you know, on a plaque on the wall in, re in reception. You know, when, we, when, we, when we talk about members first, members first is one of our core values. Yeah. And you know, that, so much value for our members emanates from that. But also, it's, a, it's about creating an ecosystem which is a trusted platform. When we talk about integrity, um, it's, it's super important. Uh, the one that also then I spend a lot of time talking to people about is our, our, our culture of transformation. So we make a commitment to people who join LinkedIn, you know, me included, that there's three elements to transformation. We want you to help us transform uh, the world. So we're trying to create economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce, and you have a role in that. So while you're here, whether you work in sales solutions or talent solutions or learning or marketing solutions or some of the new businesses like Glint that we've purchased, that we're all contributing to that. Yeah. But while we're but in order to be able to do that, we need everybody to contribute to transforming the business. This business is growing at a phenomenal uh, rate um, and it's not slowing down. So that means that you know what was what was fit for purpose last year needs to be plus plus this year to be fit for purpose. And the, the payback for the individuals on that is that's a transformational experience for you, the experience you're gaining, the skills, the knowledge. And a lot of the skills and knowledge we focus on will pay our teams back in the arc of their career. Yeah, and I think... Uh, I, and the, but the core thing, James, is that, and you notice from, from having been here, is that they're not just on the wall. You, you, you know, it's, in our, it's in our language, it's there, everyone's committed to it. Um, and it's a super, it's a super powerful uh, mechanism. In fact, if I left LinkedIn and went to another business, I'd be looking to codify culture and values in a in a similar vein of what 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 do we stand for? How do you know, what's the tribal knowledge of this organization? And I, f and I find that it really energizes the, the the team. Yeah, I feel it. It's you know it's deeply impactful on your soul almost working at LinkedIn, and that's something that we're looking to replicate within Sales Confidence as a business long term as well. Thinking um, a bit more close to home now, thinking about sales solutions and the LinkedIn sales navigator, navigator product, I, I imagine, although it's very familiar to us, um, I'm sure there's still a huge market out there of people that are still not using LinkedIn sales navigator. Can you just articulate the, the kind of value proposition mm -hmm. of um, LinkedIn Sales Navigator um, before we kind of talk more broadly about your view on the future of LinkedIn sales solutions? Yeah, uh, so, so, so there's a couple of things is that if we, uh, being a B2B salesperson today is significantly harder than being a B2B salesperson 20 years ago. Okay. And uh, we spoke about this yesterday at the conference and, 
and 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 the reasons for it have been there's been a, there's been societal and technological shifts, significant societal and significant technological shifts since 1991. So first of all, when I started my B2B sales career, uh, we went on training courses around identifying the decision maker. Well, for your B2B salesperson today, there isn't a decision maker. In fact, Gartner or CEB have been tracking this for quite a while, and for the last couple of years, they've been saying it's about 6.8. So on average, about seven people involved in a B2B relationship, high-value sale. How, we've also done work with some technology companies recently, and if you're a company selling in data centers, you know, you're selling complex IT solutions, that buying circle is likely to be 12 to 14 people. Okay. That's a lot of people. Yeah. The second thing that's a challenge that's people related is, and you know, LinkedIn, we're able to uniquely see what the movement of people is at different roles, is decision makers, the, the amount of decision makers that change annually is 20%. So one in five decision makers are changing job. Right. And then if you look at some of the stats we have on specific roles, if for example, uh, you are entering into a one-year sales cycle for something complex, and a CMO is one of the key uh, people in that in, in, in that stakeholder or buyer circle. They've been in seat for more than 34 months. There's a high statistical probability that person will leave during that year. And you know, and that, and the leaving is they can leave and take another role in their own organization, or they can move out of that organization. Yeah. So so that is that wasn't the case in. Uh, in the early 90s. In fact, I did a, um, I'm dating myself now, when I worked for Canon, I closed a very large microfilm contract with Allied Irish Bank, and the person that I dealt with retired about four years ago in the same job, okay? Uh, so, uh, so, so, so that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. Uh, people are moving around. The, the next, so, so there are societal shifts, people moving around, yeah. people changing jobs at a more frequent level. The technological shift happened slowly, and the people think about technology shifts as happening quickly. So in 1991, when I was selling photocopiers for Canon, the only way a customer could find out about a Canon product was to speak to me. Mm-hmm. And the only way they could find out about the Xerox product was speak to the person I competed against, et cetera, et cetera. So the value that a salesperson brought to a customer was information, mm-hmm and then negotiation, you know, information followed by commercial discussions. Um, now, we don't need salespeople for information. If you're, if you're a salesperson and you pride yourself on, I know everything about all of my products and that's what I, you know, my customer's gonna have trust and confidence in me, uh, that may not be the case um, because the customers are empowered to go and get mm-hmm. that information. So right now, uh, and that took time. Uh, when the, when uh, the internet or the World Wide Web as it was in 1995 hit, it, it was pretty crap, right? It, it doesn't look like what we have today. Yeah. And and actually, most corporates' approach to the early internet was to turn it into a digital representation of whatever was in their golden pages ad. Okay, and for uh, it wasn't until the late '90s that people start putting limited amounts of product information. Whereas now, you can literally find anything about any product mm-hmm. on the internet. Plus, you you your, your source may not be the vendor's website. It may be a review site, and you know, in, in our space, we've got G2. Um, so, so, so the customer is empowered not just to find out about your products, but find out about other p- 
people's experiences with your products. Has that created the 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 case that there's many more technologies as yeah. well? So, so 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 the challenge for a salesperson is how do I if I have forty accounts, how do I stay on top of all of that? Yeah. How do I stay on top of these people are are moving? What's happening with these customers? The other shift then so is that buyers' expectations are much higher. And we see this reflected in a couple of things. Firstly, uh, there's a Forrester report bouncing around that shows they've been um, measuring buyers' propensity to self-source information. It's increased from 54 a couple of years ago to 68. So buyers' preference, want to find out before I engage a salesperson. Yeah. Second one that's pretty impactful uh, is there's an Accenture report. They looked at 1,000 buyers in, in corporates across the world. And 77% of the buyers said that they don't believe salespeople can help them because they don't understand them. Well, now, w what's happening with buyer expectation is that in 1991, again, I would go to a customer that I hadn't met before and say, hey, what do you guys do around here? Tell me about your businesses. Now, at that moment in time, I was differentiating myself from all of the other salespeople. Or, hey, let me tell you about my stuff. Okay, so, so building credibility by trying to seek to understand at the beginning. Now, today, if... I rolled up into any customer and said, so what, do you do? what do you guys do? I'm destroying my credibility because that buyer has expected me to understand who they are. That person is thinking, have you not looked me up? Have you not researched? So, so, so what we see is we see customers expecting that when salespeople talk to them, they talk to them with knowledge of their industry, knowledge of their company, knowledge of the function that the person has, and then it's important that that person's able to build knowledge and rapport of that individual. And is that what LinkedIn so Sales Navigator is allowing you it, to do? Yeah, so Sales Navigator allows you to build that relationship at scale. Got it. Okay, uh, so uh, I often uh, talk about, um, imagine for a moment that uh, you could hire an assistant for all of your salespeople. And this is a very small fraction of what Sales Navigator does, but, sure. it's a, but it, it illustrates the value that it can deliver. So salespeople are expensive. Yeah. So imagine that you could hire an individual for every one of your salespeople. And what that person would do every morning is they'd come in before, um, be, be, before the salesperson. They would phone this, all of the salesperson's customers and say, has anybody left? Has anybody joined? And they would make a list. They would then phone everybody in your company to figure out, does anybody in our company know any of these people? <laughs> okay, And they'd create a little list of ac next best actions. This person's joined and John knows this person. You might want to have a conversation with John. So that's one thing they do. The second thing the, the person would do is they'd go to LinkedIn and they'd find all of the, uh, all of the postings of the people that were relevant in a buying circle, print it out and leave it on the desk. Mm -hmm. Then they'd go to the news and they'd find out everything that's happening uh, about that company. They're opening new offices, they're expanding, they're emerging, whatever. And they leave a little pile of next best actions as well. So when the expensive salesperson came in um, and sat down, they understood people movement, they understood company news, they understood industry news, and then they were informed to take a next best action. Um, and you only had to pay that person about $1,600 a year. Would yeah. that be would that be a valuable resource for your expensive salespeople? So, so Sales Navigator is bringing that surfacing relevant information, but it also is giving the uh, is is giving the salesperson the ability to understand what's going on, yeah. think about that next best action, and then engage the customer in an informed way. Now, that's a fraction. That's the tip of the iceberg. Sure. Um, you know, 
well, we're not to, we're not going to be able to go into all um, the capabilities today, yeah. and we know it is a powerful solution. Is is there a perspective on where the future um, of sales solutions is going in terms of how you think about um, the contribution you're making to the sales technology stack? Yeah. Um, can you share your view on yeah. that? Yeah. Uh, so if you, so if you think about um, the uh, the everybody is sitting on relationship capital in our organization. And you know, if you think about the value of businesses, when you're buying a business or you're selling a business, goodwill is always a material element on the, uh, on the balance sheet. When you strip back goodwill, um, key components of that are what are the relationships that this company has? Mm-hmm. Now, what we see is that um, people don't understand the relationship capital. And you know, yesterday I spoke about um, you know, 1930s Saudi Arabia, and nobody realized there was 268 billion barrels of oil under the sand, uh, but they were sitting on you know a very very large resource. Yeah. Now, how did they get at it? They used technology, and you know, so early seismic reporting and drilling, and suddenly, wow, we've got the second largest oil reserve ever discovered, and the rest is history. So it was the t- it's the technology that allows you to scope and identify, explore and extract the value. So, so, so the value that we see uh, for relationships is, um, here's an example, that, uh, again, it's fresh in my mind because we shared it yesterday. Um, we, we looked at a company who have 4,000 salespeople globally. They, uh, in the last quarter, those people, in the tar- specifically in the target industries in which they sell, yeah. had looked on LinkedIn.com for uh, almost 3,000 decision makers in their, co- in their target customers. Because they're not using technology that's able to enable them to see the scope of their relationships, the, the relationship capital they're sitting mm-hmm. on, they missed over 1,400 potentials for warm introduction. Somebody in with that 4,200 uh, people knew somebody that somebody else was searching for, but because those two salespeople are not connected, they're not able to see it. So, 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 so sitting on re- relationship capital is hugely valuable to all organizations. And what we see is that, <laughs> that's Siri trying to get in on the, uh, trying to help us out the podcast, yeah. huh? Uh, so, um, so, 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 so that's a value, right? The, you're, you're sitting on, you're sitting on relationship capital. Yeah. How do you get to it all? And, and you're never going to have a situation where all of the salespeople who work for you are going connect, to be connected together. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. And an example of that is there's 6,000 salespeople at LinkedIn. I'm connected to probably about 750 of them. Um, you know, there was 30,000, 40,000 salespeople at Dell. I was connected to about like six or 700. Yeah. So you're never going to get everyone in your organization connected. It just doesn't happen uh, naturally. So, so, so what Sales Navigator is able to do is to give people a, a, a map of the uh, relationship capital that they're that they're sitting on, and then an, and a mechanism um, through something we call TeamLink to be able to extract that and get value from those introductions. Okay, great. Um, Kind of moving forward, focusing on more about kind of your personal journey around sales. Um, for you, was there was there kind of anything that you read or some kind of sales book that's had an impact, or are you more of an individual that's learned from mentors um, that have actually helped you improve your own performance? Yeah, I, I think that that you know the very first. Um, so when I sold cars, um, 
I actually um, went from being a, an SD to an AE very quickly. And we went on, on a uh, two-week tra intensive training course. And uh, so the very first business sales relationship management book that I, that I ever read was Dale Carnegie's uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Yeah, great. A little bit, little bit dated now. Yeah. But, 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 but in, in, and what I would say is that uh, I've read many, many business books over the years. And it's, a, it's, it's about extracting what resonates with you. Yeah. Um, you know, one that I read a couple of years ago that had an impact on how um, how I show up with customers, how I show up in uh, in internal meetings is a is a book called Talk Lean, which is about say what you're there for mm -hmm. up front, um, and you know that that's been pretty valuable in terms of. Um, of of having open, honest, and constructive conversations with people. I'm here to talk about this, and I often talk to people about what I learned from that book. the The anecdote that it's, this is not in the book, but that I use to explain the book is that if you're sitting at home on a Saturday afternoon and your neighbour that two doors down that you haven't spoken to in over a year rings your doorbell and they're like, "Hey, James, how's it going? Like, you know, how's the family? You know, oh, you're looking good. Are you working out?" Ten seconds into that conversation, you're like, "You're not trusting that interaction. <laughs> yeah. You're, you know." Well, what what's going on now? Five minutes later, he's like, "Oh, look, my lawnmower broke down. Any chance to borrow your lawnmower?" Even if you give him the lawnmower, which you probably will, um, it's not a good experience for you. Okay, so, Ver versus you know, ding dong, James, haven't seen you in ages. Hope you're doing well. Look, my lawnmower's broken down. I'm going on holidays. I'm really stuck. Can I borrow your lawnmower? Yeah. Okay. You're like, yeah, I want to help you there. Okay. okay. And it's a positive experience. So so getting getting to the uh, this is what this is what I'm this is what I'm here for. Um, we have a lot of um, aspiring leaders um, and who listen to the podcast, and they're thinking about how they navigate each stage of their career and when is it right to make that transition. Are there examples of uh, a framework or process that you've gone through to decide, make a decision on transitioning into the next stage of your leadership career? Yeah. I, I, so slightly controversially on this is that you, you know leadership's not for everybody, mm -hmm. and and in fact, um, you know when when I started as a leader, I was a pretty poor leader. Um, the um, my first sort of real sizable sales director role, I was working for uh, Fujitsu Siemens Computers, and uh, I had built. I, I was running the channel and consumer business for uh, for Ireland, and my team were. There wasn't a metric that we uh, could hit that wasn't green. We were the highest revenue, profitability business unit in in the whole of EMEA. You know, if there was anything that that was to be, we were at the top of. We were at the top of. And at the time, I had um, I had uh, fourteen people working for me, mm -hmm. and I got a new boss, a lady called Neve Spellman. Um, and uh, after her thirty days looking, Neve uh, sat me down and said. Um, you know, you're doing a great job, but you've reached the pinnacle of your career, which was pretty, I was pretty insulted, first of all, but then I was like, okay, tell me more. And she's like, look, your style of management is, um, I can see that you were a computer programmer because what you literally do is you do your program punch cards for people. You do this and you do this and you do this. If this doesn't happen, come back to me, then do this, if and. So I was literally uh, using programming language in terms of managing people. Um, and her point was, what you're doing is not scalable. That you know, you, you if I give you another 14 people, you just run out of 
time to be able to do that that programming. So that was a uh, that was a pivot moment for me in uh, in my career where it was like, actually, do I go back to being an individual contributor, or do I say, look, I, I need to I need to press reset here, yeah, and and build a different type of management, a diff different type of scale. I decided on the on on the latter, and. Um, you know, the good thing is that many of those people who work for me are still my friends, uh, so it wasn't too bad an experience for them. But I would, I would ask people to like, what's your motivation to get into leadership? Yeah. Like, what is it? Um, I, I, because if it's not for you, it's not for you. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with being an individual contributor who's highly performing and earning a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, if that's what you want to do. So what, what is it you really want to do? And will leadership give you that? Um, that, 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 that experience. What I would say is that it's important for somebody who's considering to be an individual contributor to get themselves a mentor mm -hmm. who is already a leader. Yeah. And somebody who's had, uh, my recommendation is always pick somebody that's taken the same path as you and pick somebody who hasn't taken the same path as you and use those two people to get a rounded view, spend time with them, understand what the job is. Because a lot of the time, people don't understand what the job actually is, yeah. right? Sometimes you see that tip of the iceberg. It's you show up at, uh, you show up at presentations and you, you know, at, at events and you give a presentation. Uh, that's a fraction of what I do on a daily basis. Well, on that daily basis now, taking into consideration the global mm -hmm. responsibilities that you have, how do you manage um, people in different regions? And is there some noticeable anecdotes from some of the cultural differences in maybe South America versus UK and Europe, UK and Europe versus the Middle East? Is there some kind of cultural differences just that you could help us understand yeah. um, how you interpret uh, it and work with it? I think it's it's important that um, you know there are cultural differences between the UK and Ireland. Yeah. Um, there are cultural differences between Ireland and North America. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, and you know, uh, the uh, I work with a myriad of, of 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 different nationalities. I think what's important is to understand what the what the macro um, culture is. So, you know, so in so in so in certain uh, geographies, you know, for example, um, this is a generalization is that German people like data first and story second. Mm -hmm. Anglo-Saxon is story first, data second. And, but I think it's important that you recognize cultural differences, but you also treat people as individuals. Because just because somebody is German, they may not, that may be different for them. So I yep. think it's getting to understand um, that you know, what, what's, what's acceptable from a macro perspective. Mm -hmm. so, um, so, so, so I, re I rarely, if ever, uh, wear a tie um, these days, but there's certain markets that I uh, that I go to. It's disrespectful not to wear a tie. Which markets? So, uh, you would normally wear a tie in the UAE, okay. uh, and you would normally wear a tie in Germany. Interesting. Uh, so it's so it's understanding that um, you know are there cultural sensitivities you need to be you, you need to be aware of, and, yeah. and then res res respecting that. Uh, but then importantly, from my perspective, is treating people as individuals and t taking the time. Uh, so an example of that is that when um, when I assumed responsibility for the Latin American market, I actually went and spent three weeks in Brazil um, to to really spend time with the team and understand, look, how does this business function? How does this team uh, communicate? How do they collaborate? Okay. And it's different to 
how, how people in Dublin or people here in London uh, would collaborate. Excellent. Thank you for sharing. Um, moving into the final part now of this interview, um, thinking about how um, we unlock confidence in individuals mm-hmm. and um, what does confidence mean to you and how do you get the best out of yourself? Yeah, I, I, I think, again, um, there are, you know, there are days, there's day, there are days I'm super confident and there's days I'm not confident, okay? And I think what's important is that, um, that if you're, that you understand what value you bring to the, to the, to the table. Uh, what's important to me is that, um, that confidence should not come from arrogance. It mm-hmm. should come from that you're, you, you feel comfortable in what you're talking about yeah. or you feel comfortable with what you're doing. But also importantly, that you work in an environment where if you're not comfortable, um, and you're, you're not confident that you can do something that you can actually surface that and say, hey, I, I can't do this, right? Or I need help with this. So a lot of people um, make the mistake of, of comparing their, I'm, I'm borrowing now from Dr. Phil, right? They compare their, their reality to somebody else's social mask, mm. okay? And it's like, oh my God, that person is able to do this. And often, um, you know, often, People are well. That person is such a confident speaker on stage, and I, and I, I refer them to something I read about Robbie Williams uh, was that you know before Robbie Williams at the height of his career would go on stage, he would actually get sick because he was so nervous. Mm-hmm. But once he hit the stage, hit that note, then it, then it flowed. But it didn't stop him being nervous and la- and lacking confidence at that moment in time. So so I think it's uh, I try to talk to people about look you know what you see is sometimes like the duck, right? The, the, the legs are flapping under the water. Yeah. It might look like cam on top. Yeah. Uh, is it the duck or the swan? I can't remember which it is. Uh, but uh, for me, if I'm struggling with it, I've got, a, I've got a, a network of people that I can have open, honest, constructive conversations with. Great. So even um, despite um, challenges you personally may be having behind the scenes, you can draw on the kind of hearts and minds of others that are close to you, mm-hmm. that understand you, um, and allow you to kind of execute what you need to do in a day-to-day perspective yeah and, it, and it's and you know we're all we're all we're all human yeah um you know we've all got other stuff going on in our lives uh as well as 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 well as work and also it's in it's important that um that you 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 let people know what's going on in your as i you know different people are very public people different other people are private people but yeah. if you need help ask for help and do you manage um kind of your your mental and physical well-being do you have certain activities? Do you take time out? Is there um, kind of techniques that you use? Yeah, I mean, my, 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 the, the, the thing that keeps me, um, keeps me grounded, keeps me sane is I actually do a lot of cycling. Okay. Uh, so I cycle about uh, somewhere between four, on a good year, 6,000 kilometers a year. On a, uh, this year, it'll be about 4,500. Um, and what's, what that does for me is I'm, I'm outside. It's... Um, you know, I, tomorrow I'll do 60K, Sunday I'll do 100K, um, and it's, it's, it keeps me focused on something that's very different. Uh, the interesting thing is it's also numbers-driven, so Strava is the uh, <laughs> Strava is the sales navigator of the cycling world. So you're still competitive. Of, I'm still competitive. I'm still looking <laughs> at, I'm st- but I'm competing against myself, yeah. but, but, it's the, but, it, but it's about, hey, can I, can I go further? Can I go faster? Yeah. Can I get my heart rate lower than it is? Yeah. And that, uh, so I would say I've been cycling for about five years. And I think that's been a major contributor to keeping me grounded and keeping me 
uh, keeping me alive. Excellent. Well, we're glad you are, um, and we're glad you are. Thank you very much for being so honest um, with what you shared with us today. Is there a final thought um, about this business or about some trends that you would like to impart on the listeners before we wrap up? Yeah, I, I think it's the 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 biggest. So, so so business leaders need to recognize that the sales environment they're sending their sales teams out into is different than mm -hmm. the sales environment. You know, if you're a business leader who came up to be a business leader in a sales track, your teams are out there doing different jobs than you were doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, rhetoric like, I got my biggest deal from a cold call, um, you know, that sort of stuff, um, that that doesn't help, right? Because mm -hmm. that's the, the, that's not helping your teams. They're not going to get the biggest deal from a cold call. Mm -hmm. from a, a cold call. That doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's recognizing that the industry has changed, the buyer expectations have changed, and then recognizing, look, if you're a business leader that's still only enabling your sales team with a mobile phone, laptop, and CRM, that's what you were doing 20 years ago in 1999. And where else in your business have you not invested in technology in 20 years? Yeah. Uh, and understand and recognize the job your team has to do today, because it's different to 20 years ago. And the solution to that is technology, not just LinkedIn technology, but the myriad of technologies that are out there that can help with, with different different parts of the sales cycle. Great. Well, thank you for sharing. Also, thank, thank you, you um, for all your support. Um, really great to be partnering with LinkedIn Sales Solutions at the upcoming SaaS Growth event. I'm looking forward to more conversations in the future. Fantastic. Thank you, thank Liam. You. Thank you, James. Good man.